0: The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 47. "'Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified.' Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "'Brothers, what shall we do?' And Peter said to them, "'Repent and be baptized, every one of you,' And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated, and good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. This comes from Acts 17 where a mob is so angry that Christians have come to their town. They say these men have turned the world upside down by saying that there is another king besides Caesar, Jesus. And the world has continued to be turned upside down ever since through the work of Not random individual Christians, but through the work of a new community that Jesus formed, one that formed in response to Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the new community called the church. And so we're going to look more closely at this first church forming in Jerusalem in the first century, as well as the concept of the church more broadly and for us today. And as we do this, we'll have two points. Not three points, just two points today uh, about the church. The first will be how to join, and the second will be what it does. Now, don't be thrown off by a two-point sermon. This will still be a kind of long sermon with several subpoints under each one. I've, I put them in the slides, so it's still easy to track. Um, but yeah, the church, two points about the church: how to join and what it does. Let's begin with our first point: how to join. I belong to Chiefs Kingdom, which means that I'm a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs. I converted into Chiefs Kingdom at the age of five when I got to go to my first NFL game at Arrowhead Stadium. I wasn't born in Kansas City, I was born in New Jersey. And my parents aren't Kansas City fans, they're Indianapolis Colts fans, and so I have chosen a different path than them. I have converted into Chiefs Kingdom. My daughter also belongs to Chief's kingdom because I belong to Chief's kingdom and she's my daughter. She was born into Chief's kingdom. I'm raising her in the kingdom, which means go Kansas City, you heard it. It means that she roots for Kansas City. We'll put a game on TV and teach her to cheer when Kansas City scores. We even have a little Kansas City outfit that she wears proudly because she is a member of chief's kingdom. We are examples of the two ways you join chief's kingdoms. You can convert into it, like I did, or you can be born into it, like she did. Well, in a similar fashion, there are two ways to join the church. And they're both by grace, they're both described in this passage. The first is, you could convert into it, or the second, you might be born into it. And I know that may be controversial to some of you, the idea of being born into the church. And so bear with me. We'll talk about each of these in order, but I acknowledge not everyone might see this the same way. But the first way, the first way to join the church is conversion. Now, many of you might assume that because you already profess faith that this isn't relevant to you, but it is. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's always possible that someone thinks they're a Christian and then realizes when they're hearing the word of God preached that they actually aren't, and then they convert then and there. So that's always possible. But second, people you know may be on a path toward conversion, and God may intend to use you to walk with them. And so we all need to think about conversion for ourselves and for others. And so, Let's look at some of the early verses in our passage to see how conversion occurs. Verse 36 says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This was the last verse that we actually covered last week, and it's a recap of the sermon that Peter had just given at Pentecost. Jesus is the ascended Lord and resurrected Christ, and you crucified him. And, you know, I don't mean to be dramatic, but killing God is pretty much the worst thing you could do, right? And, you know, strictly speaking, they did not kill God. They killed Jesus in his human nature, but you get my point. And so how do the people hearing this respond to Peter? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. This is really important to catch. They understood with their minds what Peter had just preached to them, that God had made Jesus of Nazareth Lord and Christ, and yet they crucified him, they killed him. They understood that with their minds. They knew what they had done with their minds, but then what happened? They were cut to the heart. They had an emotional response to what their minds had just accepted to be true. They realized just how badly they had messed up just how hopeless their situation was. They were imagining facing God after all they had done wrong, and it wasn't a pretty picture. And so they were cut to the heart. And that's part of what's necessary for conversion. You need to be cut to the heart. You need to see just how badly you're messed up, just how hopeless your situation is. All of us before God are sinners. We're born in sin. We're totally depraved. Sin touches every area of our life. It's a bad situation. Before God, we stand condemned to hell for eternity, each and every one of us. And so conversion then, it's not like some wise decision that you make from a pretty stable position. It's not like saving for retirement. It's not like, maybe I'll contribute more to my 401k. Maybe I'll open a Roth IRA. Maybe I'll profess faith in Jesus. It's not like that. Conversion is like, I've swallowed poison, and unless I get some outside help now, I'm going to die. And so you cry out for help, not even knowing what to ask for specifically. And poison control comes with an antidote, or some ER doc pumps your stomach, and you're saved. That's what conversion is like. You realize just how desperate your situation is, and cry out for help for anyone who could possibly save you. For God, to save you. And the people who heard Peter realize this and cry out, Peter, what shall we do? Peter answers them in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, convert, Turn away from your false beliefs. Turn away from your sinful actions. And in faith, ask Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It's free, it's grace. You don't have to do any good works first. You just need to see your need for forgiveness and ask Jesus to meet that need. Turn away from all your old loyalties and old allegiances. Turn toward Jesus. Turn toward God. If you do, Peter says, God's grace, in God's grace and mercy, your sins will be forgiven, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was true for the very first Christians, and it's true for you too. And so if you never have, repent. Don't wait one more day. You can figure out the rest of the Christian religion later, but repent. Profess faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It's free. Repent. But don't just repent. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Once you've repented, once you've professed faith, you should be baptized. They go hand in hand. You see, baptism is a powerful picture of God's grace. The grace of God is just as real as the water that poured over you at your baptism. Just like the water washed you, so has the blood of Christ washed you. Baptism is a sign and seal of our union with Christ. It's a way that we partake in the benefits of the covenant of grace. It imprints God's grace on our hearts. Baptism isn't just some solo affair. It's not some rite of expressive individualism. It's not just you and Jesus. Baptism marks that you belong to a community. It marks that you belong to the church, the visible church. Those who are baptized make up the church, which is why when you repent, once you convert, you should be baptized. I don't associate with the old me and all my old associations I used to have. I associate now with Jesus. I associate now with Jesus' body, the church. I've been baptized. And that's what happens in our passage. In verse 41, we see the response. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people heard the mighty works of God, the gospel, that Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ, was crucified for their sins, and they repented. They professed faith in what Jesus had done for them. They converted, and they were baptized into the church. Now, as I said, there are two ways to join the church. Conversion is the first way. Being born into the church is the second way, which is why in our church we baptize infants born to believers. And I know not everyone here today probably is convinced that you should baptize infants, and that's okay. This is a secondary issue. You don't have to hold this position to be a Christian or to belong to this church. But our church does practice not infant baptism, but covenantal baptism, which includes baptizing infants, because we believe that the children of believers are a part of the covenant community. and our beliefs. But our beliefs that we should baptize the children of believers actually flows from a larger theological framework called covenant theology, that God is always related to humankind in the context of covenant, and that the people of God have a covenantal relationship with him. And so to truly understand the case for baptizing infants, you have to ask yourself if you understand covenant theology, a covenantal framework to understand the people of God's relationship with him. If you don't ascribe to that, it's totally okay. Uh, But if you don't ascribe to or understand covenant theology, then having a conversation about baptizing infants is probably a bit premature. But all that to say, this passage mentions the children of believers. And so if you'll indulge me. Allow me to talk through why we baptize children and why this is the second way to join the church, to be born into it. Look with me at verses 38 and 39. Uh, You see, when I was going through the verses related to conversion, I actually cut Peter off. He wasn't done speaking. I stopped after verse 38, but if we keep reading the full quote into verse 39, he says something very important, starting in verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for, and listen closely here, for the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself, the promise is for you and for your children. What is Peter talking about? Where did this promise that Peter mentioned come from? It almost seems like a non sequitur, right? Well, it's not. Remember, Peter is speaking to a group of Jews who believe the Old Testament is authoritative in the word of God. And so when Peter says, the promise is for you and your children, they instantly would have thought of the Old Testament and specifically a verse like Genesis seventeen seven. Genesis Genesis 17:7 7 says, "And God said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you." What's the promise that Peter is mentioning? It's the covenant. The everlasting covenant, my covenant between me and you and your offspring, is the same thing as the promise is for you and for your children. The everlasting covenant is the covenant of grace that God established with humanity. And he communicated this covenant, he communicated this promise to several Old Testament figures, but especially to Abraham. In Genesis 12, he promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation, and his offspring, his family, would be as numerous as the stars and bless every family on earth. In Genesis 15, remember when Abraham went to sleep and God walked between the cut-up animals? This was communicating, this is what God was communicating to Abraham, that even if Abraham didn't keep the covenant, God would keep the covenant. That was a promise. Even if you don't keep your end of the covenant, Abraham, I will keep the covenant. That's a promise that God made him. Then in Genesis 17, after establishing the everlasting covenant with Abraham and Abraham's offspring, he gave Abraham a sign of the covenant, circumcision. And Abraham circumcised himself, which we're not going to talk about, but then every male born in his line afterward, every male born in Israel would be circumcised at eight days old as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and all of Abraham's offspring. Clearly, before they could ever profess faith, they would be marked as belonging to the people of God. It was a sign of the covenant that God made with his people. And the sign pointed to something. Circumcision, it pointed to something that God was going to do for his people. You know, neither baptism nor circumcision is a sign of what we have done. They're both signs of what God has done. And so what did circumcision point to? it pointed forward to Christ and his crucifixion. Do you see how? The piercing of flesh, the cutting off. Jesus' flesh was pierced. He was cut off from life itself, and so he fulfilled the sign of circumcision, and then he gave a new sign of the covenant. Peter knew to instruct the crowd to be baptized because in the Great Commission, Jesus had said to baptize. Make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It's the new sign of the covenant. And like circumcision pointed forward to Christ's death on the cross, baptism points back to Christ's death on the cross. Baptism points to Jesus' blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Just like this water pouring over you cleanses your body, Christ's blood poured out to cleanse you from sin. And it's water instead of blood because no more blood needs to be shed. Christ's blood is sufficient once and for all. And so this new sign of the covenant is what is being kind of inaugurated right now in this passage in Acts 2. It's the transition from circumcision to baptism, the new sign that marks everyone who belongs to the people of God, those who convert into the church and therefore those who are born into the church. Like Abraham would be circumcised as a professing adult, Abraham's children would be circumcised before they could profess faith. So it would be for these 3,000 people, they were baptized as professing adults, but any children born later to them would be baptized before they could profess because bapti- baptism is a sign of the same covenant that circumcision was. Now it's probably a good time to offer one point of clarification. Uh, just like circumcision did not save you, baptism does not save you. The children of believers who are baptized are not automatically saved, just like there were surely numerous Israelites who are circumcised, who bore the sign of the covenant, but who rejected the covenant and were not saved. Baptism likewise does not save, but it marks people who belong to the visible people of God, the visible church, the covenant community. So don't let that lead you to downplay the importance of baptism because baptism still points to something of the utmost importance it points to God and his gracious covenant with us the same gracious covenant that circumcision pointed to it was an everlasting covenant after all and if you look at the original hebrew of genesis 17:7 7, i will establish my covenant between you between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant The Hebrew word that is translated there, everlasting, it means everlasting. It means that it lasts forever. It's still good today. I know I kind of framed the church as distinct from Israel, and like something new is happening. And something new, to some extent, is happening, but it's not totally distinct from Israel. The reality is that the church is a continuation and an expansion from Israel, the covenant that God formalized with Abraham is still being carried out now through the church. We're still part of the true Israel, who God's people were always supposed to be, no longer confined to just one ethnic group or just one nation, but all nations, all ethnicities. And so those born into God's people today, the church, the covenant, the promise, it's still for you. The promise is for you, which is a grace because you can't choose your parents. You can't choose where or when you're born. You can't choose for your parents to be Christians, and so if you're born into the people of God, if you were born into Israel in the Old Testament era or today in the New Testament era, if you're born into the church, it's grace. You've received a grace because not everyone gets to be born into the church, but if you are, You've been a recipient of the promises and blessings of God's everlasting covenant of grace. And the mark of that promise, the sign and seal of that covenant, is baptism. And so it's rightly applied. To the children of believers, even before they themselves can profess faith. It marks them as holy. It sets them apart. It gives you every right, parents, to instruct them in the Lord, to teach them the scriptures, to teach them to pray, to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, if we're honest, if you didn't think that your children had a special status, the special status that baptism marks, then they're pagans, they're outsiders. You'd have no right to force your religion upon them without their permission. But we know that that's not right. The children of believers are a part of the church, even before they profess faith. That's how you already treat them. We know that there's something special about the children of believers intuitively. We know we should train them and raise them in the Lord. We know it's God's grace. They've been born in the church. Okay, we got to move on. I don't want to talk about this forever. I actually do want to talk about it forever, but I can't talk about it forever. So I'm going to move on. I'm sure that there are questions remaining from some of you, and so if that's you, I'd love to talk more. I didn't have time to address every facet of that issue, but again, the two ways to join the church, convert into it and be baptized, or be born into it and be baptized. Covenantal baptism either way. The promise is for you and for your children. Now, as people of the promise, as members of the church, what do we do? What is the church all about? What does the church do? And that takes us to our second point, what it does, what the church does. In our passage, there are a lot of things that the newly formed Christian church does. And what's listed here isn't necessarily exhaustive, but these are the first things the first church does did and so let's look at them and I'm gonna break them down into four categories devoting sharing gathering and growing so the first is devoting verse 42 says and they devoted themselves to the Apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers they devoted themselves to these things and what does it mean to be devoted to something It means you place a high priority on it. You're loyal to it. You love doing it. You do it regularly. You persist in it. You persevere. And so this newly formed community, the church, they devoted themselves to these four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is Jesus' teaching. But now that Jesus had ascended, he tasked the apostles with teaching the church what Jesus had taught them Jesus mentions this in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, mentioning it again. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. This comes up also in John 14, when Jesus is explaining to the disciples that he's going to leave them eventually, but send the Holy Spirit. John fourteen twenty-five through 26 says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so being devoted to the apostles' teaching isn't like some backup plan or just doing the best with what you have. It was Jesus' plan all along to depart and send his Holy Spirit who would help the apostles teach what Jesus had taught them. And so to be devoted to the apostles' teaching is to be devoted to Jesus' teaching, to God's teaching, and the early church was. And we continue that tradition today. We're doing it right now. Preaching and teaching the word of God is devotion to the apostles' teaching, devotion to Jesus' teaching, devotion to God's teaching. Your daily Bible readings and meditations are devotion to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to Jesus' teachings they were also devoted to the fellowship. And this means a shared unity of spirit above all other possible unities, which makes perfect sense now that they had all received the same spirit, the Holy Spirit that united them. And the implication of the shared unity of spirit would be associating with one another, being friends with one another, sharing values, being loyal to one another, bearing one another's burdens. It means that they they knew each other or they got to know each other. They had a positive disposition immediately toward one another because of their shared faith, because of their unity of spirit. Do you ever experience that? Do you take on a positive disposition toward other Christians just for the fact that they are a brother or sister in Christ? Did you know that you actually have more in common with someone who is different than you in every way but shares your faith than you do with someone who is the same as you in every way but rejects your faith? My pastor, when I was in seminary, described what this devotion to the fellowship might look like Uh, during the lead-up to the 2016 presidential election. He said something to the effect of, if we're devoted to the fellowship, then if you need your church, if you ever need help, there'll be cars that show up to your house that have both Make America Great stickers and I'm with her stickers, because the devotion to the fellowship will be above any other devotion you have, any other allegiance you have, That's what it means to be devoted to the fellowship. Easier said than done, but all other associations will pale in comparison. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were also devoted to the breaking of bread. There can be some disagreement on what specifically this refers to in our passage, but here's my take. This is referring to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Others may say it's just a general devotion to eating together, to fellowship, Uh, because often people use breaking bread as a euphemism for fellowship, which it can mean. I think it actually means that later on in verse 46. But here, uh, there's a definite article before the breaking of bread, not just a general devotion to breaking bread, but to the breaking of bread. And additionally, the word right before it was the fellowship. And so if the breaking of bread just means fellowship, then fellowship is twice in a row in the list, which doesn't make that much sense. And so most likely, the breaking of bread is something different than the fellowship. I think it's the Lord's Supper. I don't know how you can you know, hear the breaking of bread without remembering the Lord's Supper. Luke twenty-two nineteen, And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so from the very start of the church, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. Not just the bread, the wine also. I think saying the breaking of bread is just shorthand. For the entire meal bread and wine jesus's body broken for you and jesus's blood poured out for you they devoted themselves to the sacrament and we do too as i said before communion the lord's supper is my favorite part of the worship service the gospel is proclaimed to all five of your senses you see the gospel you hear the gospel you touch the gospel you taste the gospel you smell the gospel through the sacrament of the lord's supper they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Last thing, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Together, they prayed to God. They talked to God. They expressed their praises to God. They confessed their sins to God. They gave thanks to God. They asked for help from God when they needed him. And, you know, we just started having this gathering before the worship service to pray. I encourage all of you to try and participate sometime you know, from time to time, maybe even every time. It's good and right for God's people to gather and pray to devote themselves to the prayers. And, you know, if prayer can feel a little uh, scary sometimes, especially in a group, uh, it's totally fine to pray pre-written prayers. That's actually what the Lord first said when he was teaching people how to pray. Here, pray this. Matthew 6, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just pray that prayer if you don't know where to start. Jesus literally said, pray this prayer. They were devoted to the prayers. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers that's what they were devoted to. Next, let's look at sharing. You know, our daughter uh, is just sort of beginning to learn how to share, and if she has a toy or something, Holly and I might go up to her and say, can daddy have a turn, or can mommy have a turn, and she'll actually, you know, take what she's holding and place it in our hand. It's, It's very impressive. She's beginning to learn how to share for about 1.5 seconds, before she immediately grabs it right back. And, you know, it's funny, but it's showing that sharing doesn't come naturally to us. We kind of have to be taught how to share. And even when we do share, we often expect to get something back in return. In our passage, verses 44 and 45, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They had all things in common. They distributed to any who had need." This is essentially describing communism, right? To quote Karl Marx, no, I'm just kidding. Some of you were like, I knew it. This isn't describing communism or socialism, because frankly communism and socialism are not generous enough visions The early church was sharing, having all things in common, selling possessions, distributing the proceeds to those who had need because they wanted to. They were not doing it under government compulsion. They were motivated by grace and love. You could say it was the gospel that was compelling them. The gospel of Jesus Christ was such good news to them that their possessions and their belongings essentially became worthless to them. Who needs them if I have Christ, right? In Christ, I have the most important thing, and so everything else is expendable now. They knew that so much had been generously and graciously given to them by Jesus, that their natural response was to generously and gracious give to those who had need among them. In a sense, it was sort of a justice issue, too. It would be unjust not to give to those in need. there can be some confusion about how this is a justice issue we tend to think that sharing with people in need is simply charity something you're free to do if you want but by no means something you have to do but actually you do have to it would be unjust not to and the point is not that any one believer who has less can say hey you have more you owe me That's not how the sense of justice works. The point is that any believer who has more has more because God gave them all they had. They don't necessarily owe any one person, but they do owe God for everything they have. And so before God, it's not just for the one who has received more to keep all of it and not share with those who are in need. And so how is your willingness to share? How is your willingness to be generous? Do you see the things that you have as primarily yours or for you only? Or are they gifts that God has given you, gifts that you've received to use for God's purposes? The church is a community that the gospel has shaped and sunk down deep into so that its members have eyes to see how God has given them time or talents or resources to use for others. And so the people of God shared freely with all who had need. Let's talk about gathering now. The church was also gathering. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This is essentially describing, you know, gathering to worship, attending the temple, and gathering for fellowship. Breaking bread in homes possibly linked to the Lord's Supper, um, which was maybe perhaps part of a larger meal that they shared together at the time, but the point is that people gathered. They got together physically. They worshipped physically. They fellowshiped physically. They got together. It's important to get together. Something special and holy happens when God's people gather. Let me emphasize again the verse from our time of renewal, Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. And obviously I'm preaching to the choir this morning because you're here. You met together today. But it is a challenge sometimes to get together, isn't it? It's a challenge sometimes not to neglect gathering. What makes gathering a challenge for you some days, some weeks? What makes neglecting to meet together so easy some days, some weeks? Maybe it's because you go to bed too late on a Saturday night. You know, is, is deciding to stay up those extra hours effectively deciding to skip church? Or are there priorities, perhaps, that make it a challenge You know, is committing time in your week to gathering for worship or gathering for fellowship, does that mean that you're going to have to give up something that you really like to do? Maybe priorities are a reason it's hard to gather together. Or maybe geography. You know, cars are awesome, but they're both a blessing and a curse. I mean, one blessing is you can live far away from where you work. One curse, you could live far away from where you worship or live far away from who you worship with. And I'm not going to tell anyone how to live their life or where exactly to live, but just throw that out there. Next time you're thinking about moving, will your church factor in? Will the people you worship with factor in? Will this move me and I need to give up meeting with this church? Should I consider moving somewhere closer to where my church worships and gathers? Or am I willing to commit myself to not letting my geography stop me from gathering? I think post-COVID especially, our country and state and the Bay Area, you know, we're all We all got really used to coping with life cooped up in our homes, and that was necessary for a time. But it's not how humans were designed to live their entire lives. And, you know, now I worry for many people in our society, they're stuck in the patterns and rhythms and routines that they developed during COVID, and actually meeting together again is something they desperately need but don't really know how or just struggling to take those first steps back to meeting together. Perhaps the church, perhaps our church, can lead the way on this. We can say, yeah, it's tough to break out of habits we formed that kept us occupied at home, but we have some sense of what God made humans or how God made humans to live. Can we lead the way in reintroducing more and more in-person gatherings? Can we do it for ourselves? Can we do it for our neighbors? They may need us to do that for them. One easy application before I move on, Again, Saturday, March 26th, meet and feast will be at the halls. They have a great outdoor space. If you haven't made it out to one yet or don't make it often, maybe try to make that gathering. Maybe try to bring someone with you to that gathering. Don't give up meeting together. Devoting, sharing, gathering, and finally growing. The church was growing. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. How did the church grow? Two things at the same time, they just did their thing. Everything we've talked about so far, their devoting, sharing, gathering, their worship, their fellowship, their prayer. The church just did their thing. They praised God and they had favor with all the people. They did their thing, they lived their lives for God's glory, but in such a way that other people had favor toward them. And the passage doesn't really say what that looked like specifically. And we actually know from later on in Acts that sometimes people did not have favor toward the church, but at least right here at the start, the way the church did what the church does somehow carried favor with people around them. They just did their thing in such a way that showed love and care and compassion and hospitality to the people around them. And so how can we do that too? How can we be absolutely and unapologetically devoted to what the church has always been devoted to and have such a kind and loving and welcoming and serving demeanor toward people that outsiders actually want to join in on what we're doing? Tons more could be said, but I think just the concept of hospitality fits in here. Hospitality is all about doing your thing in your space, but with visitors in mind, the outsider, the person who doesn't quite know how things work, and providing what they need, explaining how and why. Hospitality is kind of what threads that needle. The early church praised God and had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let me close with this. The Lord added to their number. They didn't add to their own number. The Lord added to their number. And this brings us full circle. Ultimately, how does anyone join the church? The Lord adds them. In his sovereign grace and mercy, the Lord adds people. Which means that we ultimately don't have control over whether or not people convert. We don't have control over who is born into the church. We don't have control over whether people join our church. The Lord adds people so what does that mean for us? It means that we just need to be faithful. Devote yourself, share, gather, be faithful to do those things. Pray, trust the Lord for him to use what we do, to use us, to use you to add to the number day by day, those who are being saved. Just be faithful, trust the results to God. He is the one who adds, we don't. And of course, of course If the Lord is the one who adds, it's supremely important for you to remember that he was the one who added you. How did he add you to the number that was day by day being saved? Did you convert to Christianity? How gracious of God that in his sovereignty he ripped you off the path of destruction you were on and placed you in his church among the saints. Were you born in the church? How gracious of God in his sovereignty to place you from day one among his saints in the church so that not a day went by where you didn't know that your heavenly father loved you and sent Jesus to die for your sins. The Lord added you to the number. How gracious of him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your tremendous grace toward all of us. Each of our stories is unique but you know them all intimately because you set them in motion. We thank you and praise you for that, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, empower us to live by faith, to trust you, to continue adding people to your number in our church and at any church. Add to the number, Lord, the people who are being saved. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Son and the filling of your Spirit. We pray this all in your name. Amen.